Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 9, the book of Psalms. We're looking at the ninth and 10th Psalm this morning. And when we begin our reading this morning, we will read both Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, because I believe, as do most scholars, that they constitute one Psalm. If you've gotten there, and if you're in the ESV as I'm reading, you'll see a footnote attached to um, Psalm 9 saying, um, Psalm 9 and 10 together follow an acrostic pattern. Each stanza beginning with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. In the Septuagint, they form one psalm. So in many of our ancient copies, 9 and 10, one psalm. Psalm 9 in English would begin with A, then B, then C, and 10 finishes that. Now, it's not a perfect acrostic, which is common enough in Hebrew, but for all those reasons and common themes within them, they're almost certainly one psalm. Now, this morning, we'll be, um, we'll be in a good position if we actually make it through Psalm 9, and we'll pick up wherever we leave off this week, next week, finishing up 9 and or 10. <clears throat> but I would like to read them together. I think the connection is significant because themes brought up in 9 are developed in 10, and places where David goes in 10 help give some information about Psalm 9. So let's begin by reading Psalm 9, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. I sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. In the net they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are ensnared in the work of their own hands. Higion, Salah. The wicked shall return to Sheol and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men, Salah. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. 
Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His way prospers at all time. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved, though all generations shall I not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing. Deceit and oppression are under his tongue, are in mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In the hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you take note, mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice for the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more to the choir master. Let's pray. Lord God, we um, pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. This song imposed by David, given to your people, would instruct us that our thoughts and our passions and our hearts would fall in step behind this text. We would cry out as David cries out for justice, that we would grieve injustice, that we would boast and take confidence in your control and your right rule. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Some of you may have noticed um, when I began this psalm, uh, I did not start as the ESV links the psalm title to the choir master. We talked about that somewhat in my ABF last week. Um, Pastor Daniel may even this summer talk about some of that more. And I have a handout in the back you can take that talks about the psalm titles and the arrangement. But the, the simple fact is, I believe, for reasons that I think are justified, that the psalm title of Psalm 9 begins a psalm of David. And you can listen to last week's ABF discussion, or you can stick around this week. That said, let's dive in. We've got 20 verses to cover if we get through Psalm 9 this morning, and so we need to move somewhat quickly. We have communion to celebrate the Lord's table, and so I've broken Psalm 9 into six points that I want to look at, um, beginning with David's commitment, personal praise. David's commitment, personal praise, and we see in the first two verses a fourfold parallel of statements. I will, I will, I will, I will. I will give thanks. I will recount. I will be glad and exult. I will sing praises. Now, considering what's coming in this psalm, that David is, is in fear of his life. If you look down to verse 13, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. 
O you who lift me up from the gates of death. David is, is surrounded by enemies. This well could have been written in his times of running from Saul where it seemed as though the whole nation were against him. The king and his forces are searching for him. That, that would be a good fit for this. So David has very real concerns in his life, very real fear. And as we add in Psalm 10, that the state of the wicked are on his mind. And we get, a, we get a profile of the wicked that's 11 verses long. 10 2, all the way through 11, is simply one long profile of the wicked. David is grievously vexed, outraged. He's a little confused. Why is God not acting? you, you got to understand that to make sense of the significance of the first two verses. Sometimes in our experience, the praise of God wells up within us. You see a sunset and you say, oh, God is amazing. Some blessing comes into your life and just praise comes out of your lips. There certainly are times where that is the case. There are other times where you may need to determine to purpose, I will praise God. And I believe that's what David is doing here. Before he gets to his complaint, before he gets to his request, he, I will, I must praise God. And I think that's so important for our soul and for our own instruction because only after, I think, David praises God, David recounts what God has done, is he in a right position to make his requests. So see the fourfold, I will give thanks the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Notice the fullness of this. Thanksgiving. And speaking to others, I will recount, I will tell of your mighty deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name. In fact, I think... Um, the very next verses include some of that recounting as David recounts what God has done. So your first blank, in his affliction, and that's the word David uses, verse 13, see my affliction. David is in affliction. He is fearing death. He has many enemies. They're on his mind. But in his affliction, David commits himself to praise. What a wonderful pattern that is. In the New Testament, Philippians, Make your requests known. Do not be anxious about anything, but with prayer, with supplication, make your requests known to God. That's exactly what David's doing. I have some, on my heart, I have some requests. On my heart, I have some fear. But first, a settled determination to praise God. Like I said, sometimes our praise flows up um, spontaneously. And sometimes we need to settle it in our mind. I will give thanks. I will recount. I will exult. I will sing praise. In his affliction, David commits himself to praise. And notice the full orbness of this. Um, when the Spirit of God is in us, when we are walking in truth, these are the natural things that come up. Listen to the New Testament's description. In Ephesians and Colossians, connecting this type of attitude with both the Spirit dwelling in us and God's Word dwelling in us. Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he describes the things that will accompany that filling. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So there's the result of being filled with the Spirit is this type of joyous, mutual edification, speaking, singing, recounting. In Colossians, it's said to be the result of the Word richly dwelling in us. Listen to Colossians 3. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so one of the things I think we get from this is the Bible is real about sorrow and suffering. We're going to see David spend some time talking about the wicked, pouring out his vexation, and that is right and good. But even in that affliction, it is possible to praise and exalt. I want you to get that. You, we need to be capable of both ends of this psalm. We need to be capable at the same time in one psalm, in one song that God gave his people to sing, a psalm set to an acrostic pattern which is made to ease memorization, which even possibly suggests a priority. This is one of the first possible psalms you should be memorizing is, is one of the possible implications of the, uh, the acrostic pattern. And, it, and it both one song, both at the same time, I will give thanks, I will recount, I will be glad and exult, I will sing praise, be gracious to me, see my affliction. They can both coexist. They do both coexist in spirit-filled, godly people. And second point I want to draw attention to is this. Remembering who God is and what he has done is critical when facing adversity. I don't have time now to show you again and again and again this pattern in Scripture. I'll point you simply to Psalm 77 as a good example, Lamentations 3. But so often, the saints of God battle anxiety, battle fear, battle discouragement, depression by intentionally recounting God's faithfulness. That's exactly what David's going to do in the next few verses. I think he's actually looking back to the exodus and the conquest of Canaan. I'll explain why in a few minutes. But he knows he needs to recount God's deeds. And that's not simply for God's sake, but for his own. As we are told what God has done, if we look again and again at God's acts of deliverance, it gives us hope. It gives us hope. Remembering what God has done um, is critical when facing adversity, which brings us then to David's comfort. That's exactly where he goes. We get some of this recounting. Notice, notice this is in past tense. But we're aware this isn't currently taking place. Currently, why, O oh Lord, you stand far away? So this is remembering past activity on God's part. When my enemies turn back, he says, they stumble and perish before your presence. And we get a five-fold repetition of what God has done. You have maintained my just cause. You have sat on your throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted their name out forever and ever. The enemy came to an end. In everlasting ruins, their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. And so we get, um, the, I've mentioned this in Luke, the inclusio, verse 3 and 6 sort of form bookends. And in between that five-fold parallel statements of what God has done. And David is finding comfort as he remembers God's past judgment. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. 
because God has maintained his cause. And, and the way the parallelism here works is it develops a thought. He first starts with the truth. God has in the past defended my cause. God has in the past basically fought on my behalf. Okay, David, to what extent? Well, he has sat on his throne giving righteous judgments. What type of judgments? You have rebuked the nations. How has he rebuked the nations? Well, you have made the wicked perish. To what extent? You have blotted out their names forever and ever. You see how the progression goes? God has fought for me. How do you fight for me? He fought for you by ruling as a king from his throne that he has established. What type of judgments did he give? He rebuked the nations. You see the development of thought. And he's remembering what God has previously done for him. I mean, he even recounts to Saul when he goes to fight Goliath how the Lord has already given him strength to fight the bear and the lion. Or he could be remembering the Exodus. I think he certainly is a little later in this psalm. Or the conquest of Canaan. I mean, and notice the end. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. I think that certainly is looking at the, uh, the conquest of Canaan. Inhabited by others, the, the Israelites moved into cities they did not build. They reaped from vineyards they did not plant. And so thoroughly did God blot out those nations that until recent um, times, archaeologists scoffed at the notion that there ever were Hittites. Do you know that? That, re- that until just recently where they found some archaeological evidence for the Hittites, that was one of the claims of the Bible's error. There are no Hittites. We can't find anything about the Hittites. David said he blotted out their memory. That's how absolute God's destruction of the Hittites was. That for 2,000 years or more, there's no, there's no indication of them. So I think that's what David probably has in mind. So David is looking at he took this tiny people, starting from a single family that were slaves, and he takes them and he delivers them from slavery, and he miraculously brings them into a land of their own. They defeat their enemies. They destroy their foes. He establishes a nation. David's looking to that, and I think that's part of what he's getting comfort from. He's remembering God's past actions, remembering what God has already done for him, which is going to give him great confidence for what God will do. So the points here, one, God has proven himself faithful in the past. There's so many places we could look to to prove this. The cross, your own salvation. I've got so many experiences in my life that God has proven faithful. And second, God has, in the past, utterly destroyed his enemies. Because ultimately, David's hope and confidence is going to come, we'll see, in the future judgment, as he's looking at current injustice, as he's looking at current oppression. And David is greatly vexed by this. I know in our culture today, what's referred to as social justice is a big buzzword and deal. David is very much concerned in this psalm in 9 and 10 with the oppression of the poor by the wicked and the rich and the powerful. That's on his mind. He's grieving him. And he's ultimately going to find his solace and comfort looking back at God's past judgment and trusting God's future judgment. There will be justice. Justice will be done, even if he's not seeing it done right now. Point three, we go from David's commitment to David's comfort, David's certainty. David's certainty. This looking back at God's actions makes certain what he says next. And notice how verse 7 starts with a contrast. We've looked at the fate of the wicked in the past. Look at the fate of the Canaanites and the Hittites and Egypt. They're transient. They're dust in the scales. They're weak. But 
the Lord sits enthroned forever. And again, we get this repetition. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with uprightness. He judges between peoples with uprightness. And so David's certainty in the midst of fear, fear of death, his affliction, his enemies, watching the poor, watching the weak and the needy be taken advantage of and oppressed, his certainty is in God's eternal rule. God's rule is unending. That's the emphasis, right? The Lord sits enthroned for a four-year election cycle. No. Forever. Here is a king who doesn't take a vacation or sabbatical. Here's a king who is ruling forever. And that's one of the other confidences we need to have when we see injustice. And again, we can be tempted to think either we're trusting in God, and if you're trusting in God and his rule, then you're not going to be bothered by what's going on because God's in control, right? Nope. You can be absolutely confident that King Jesus is in charge, that the Lord God is ruling on an eternal, non-tottering throne, and cry out and be vexed about present injustice. You can do both. This psalm does both. But you got to have both. We're tempted to do one or the other. God's in control, so I'm not going to let it bother me. That's not what David's doing. Or I'm bothered by it. I can't take comfort in the fact that God's in control. David freely admits he doesn't know why God is letting this go on. In fact, that's one of the questions he asks the Lord, right? Look at the way chapter 10, verse 10. Psalm 10 starts. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why? Do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Well, look at verse 18. The needy shall not always be forgotten. What's that suggest? Right now, it looks like they are. The hope of the poor shall not perish forever. It looks like it's perishing right now, but it won't always be the case. But God's rule is certain. You need to get that fixed in your minds. God is an absolute monarch. He is sovereign. He is in control. He has not stopped paying attention Whatever evil is going on, whatever affliction is going on, whatever enemies you face, do not doubt God's sovereign rule. You can be confused. You don't have to have an answer. David doesn't. He said, why are you doing this, Lord? But I know whatever's going on, it's not that Satan got the upper hand or you were looking away and distracted or nothing like that. There's a confidence, a certainty in God's rule. Which leads then to point B, God's refuge is secure. Not only is God an absolute and eternal king, twice we're told the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And a stronghold is where you run to when you got enemies. You go to a stronghold and you lock yourself in and the walls and the protection protect you. And you see, that's what God is like. God is like a, a fortress that you flee to for safety. And now we get the other piece in. So far... The, 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 the wicked have been named a number of ways. Verse 3, my enemies. Verse 5, the nations. Verse 5, the wicked. Verse 6, my enemy. Verse 13, those who hate me. 15, the nations. 16, the wicked. 17, the wicked. All the nations. 19, the nations. 20, the nations. But now we get the other half. In verse 9, the oppressed in verse 10, those who know your name. 
those who seek you. Verse 12, the afflicted. Verse 18, the needy, the poor. Whether or not you think that the current emphasis on social justice is being handled well, accurately, and I tend to have a lot of concerns with some of how that's portrayed, we need to never become callous to real oppression and real injustice. The Bible cares about it. Here are the oppressed, here are the poor, here are the afflicted, the fatherless, here are the wicked, looking, hunting, trapping them. And, And in that world, God's refuge is secure. It is secure. Ultimately, because God's care is loyal. God's care is loyal. That's the notion is reciprocity and loyalty. Those who know your name put their trust in you. Then he tells, why would they do that? And you got to understand the logic here. Someone's name is their character. And we use the expression, do you have a good name in the community? That's the notion here. Your, your name is your character. When you pray in Jesus' name, it's not a mantra. It's not some magic word. God in heaven, oh, I don't know if you pronounced that correctly. Did you do the Greek vowels right? He's, that's not the way it works. If I'm praying in Jesus' name, I'm praying according to who he is and what he has done, his character, his expressed will. Those who know God's name and character, and that's linking back to his covenant name, what we will attempt to translate as Yahweh, because they now know who God is, they put their trust in him. That's that's the logic. You might say to someone, anyone who knows Tony knows you can trust Tony. Anyone who knows the Lord by name are those who put their trust in him. Because once they know who he is, they know he is utterly trustworthy. Why is he trustworthy? For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And one of the indications, by the way, of of the connection between 9 and 10, God shows this covenant loyalty to those he knows by name and who know him by name. They seek him. He doesn't forsake them. One of the characteristics of the wicked in chapter 10, verse 4 is what? In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. There's some of the intertextionality of of Psalm 9 and 10, indicating, again, one composition. Those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And again, this is true in light of how the psalm ends. Look at 18. The needy shall not always be forgotten. The hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Which means it may look like, it may look like they've been forsaken and forgotten, that, that may be the way it looks, but it's not the case. The Lord does not forsake those who seek him. And that's, again, good news. Um, it may look in your life like, like God has stopped listening. It may look in your life like God has forsaken you. He has not. You may have circumstances where you, like David, cry out, I've got enemies, I'm afflicted, why aren't you doing something? And again, the certainty we have, David's certainty, whatever's going on, it does not mean God has forsaken him. God does not forsake those who seek him. And that is good news. And notice this is all in preparation for David laying out his complaint, for David laying out his, he hasn't even got to his request yet. This is the foundation of faith he's laying. I need to praise God. I need to remember what God has done. I need to remember his character. He's getting ready to make his request. These are important truths to to settle us, to give us a foundation as we express our vexation, our anguish, our confusion. Again, they're both in the same psalm. 
You can believe in the sovereignty of God and be utterly confused and vexed at why God is doing what he's doing. And that is okay. Spirit-filled David does that. We can sometimes think that if we express our confusion and our vexation, we're letting the, the, the side down. We always have to say, God's good. God is good. You need to be able to say the first half of the psalm. You need to also be able to express the concerns and the questions of the second half. That leads, as David has meditated on these certain truths, God's rule is certain. His refuge is secure. His care is loyal. He just now, we get some spontaneous praise. And at the beginning of the psalm, he's got to set his mind. I will, I will, I will, I will. Now, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. We get David's call. And all of a sudden, David's involving other people, isn't he? This is an exhortation horizontally to the, to the people of God. I, I get the impression that as David looks at God's past judgment, as David looks at the certainty of his rule, the security of his refuge, the, the loyalty of his love, he, he, this is more spontaneous. And, and it's overflowing, and it goes corporate, it goes public. First, point to look at and notice. David first praises, then he remembers, then he requests. And that's the pattern we saw, right? I will give thanks, I will recount, I will be glad, I will sing praise. And then we get this past look at God's judgment, the present look at his character, the conclusions we can draw from it. He, he is just, he, he is a stronghold, He's, he, he knows them by name, he doesn't forsake them. And he still hasn't gotten to his request yet. Because um, point four here, um, 4A, private worship leads to corporate worship. Private worship leads to corporate worship. Keep, keep your finger here and turn to Psalm 34. This is a progression we see in Scripture again and again. And this is important because we live in a privatized world. You can have every song you want to listen to on your phone and no song you don't. With a perfect volume in your car, you can have a private worship experience. That's good. We, we should be in, in our cars, in our prayer closets, wherever, worshiping God. But I know some of us can wrestle with corporate worship. And yet, biblically, the one always leads to the other. Look at 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. He's inviting other people to come worship with him. Let us exalt his name together. And if your worship of the Lord, however you worship the Lord in song, in prayer, and in praise, does not lead you, does not move you into corporate worship, something is wrong. And you may want to question if it's the Lord you are indeed worshiping. Because again and again and again, the delight of the Spirit-filled person is in God's people. Remember last week we saw in Psalm 16? Go turn there. Psalm 16, verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And again and again in the Psalms, when will I arise and go worship God? When will I join the great congregation? A lot of what we will be doing in heaven will be corporately praising God and worshiping Him. 
So you better get used to it. Because eternity is a very long time. Private worship leads to corporate worship. And I think it does so very spontaneously in this psalm. Second, God intends his faithfulness in my life and in your life to encourage others. God intends his faithfulness in your and my life to encourage others. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. God wants us repeating to each other. And so David's already done that for us. He's recounted, God undertook my cause. And just think, think through your, your experience in, in the church with God's people, how encouraging it is when others tell you about God's faithfulness in their life. When, when others give you a testimony of the grace of God. I mean, that's that not one of the most encouraging things. Because in effect, it's reminding us again and again who God is. Oh, yeah. God is good like that, isn't it? Praise. And we, we hear these things. We hear testimony. I just heard this morning about how some bureaucratic red tape for some insurance stuff got cut through almost miraculously. And again, I'm reminded, how good is our God? And so God wants us speaking his... We, we can have a mock modesty. We don't want to speak. God intends us to recount his deeds, not simply for his own glory, but for our good. And you're my mock modesty, maybe withholding encouragement and help from others. If God has been good to you, tell others of it. Invite others to, to enter into your worship in that. It begins at the beginning. I will remember, I will recount. And here he picks that theme back up again, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Private worship leads to corporate worship, and God intends his faithfulness in my life to encourage others. Next, David's cry. Now, finally, in verses 13 and 14, we've gotten to David's request. Notice the foundation he's laid. A set determination, a commitment to personal praise. He begins to recall God's great saving acts, that God has taken up his cause, that God has been faithful, that God has utterly destroyed his enemies. He reminds himself of the certainty of God's rule in his kingdom. Whatever's going on that I don't understand, and it's quite okay that I don't understand it, it is not the case that God stopped ruling. It's not the case that God is no longer a refuge. It's not the case that God forsakes those who seek him. No, no, those things are all sure and certain. Then he engages in corporate praise. Now, finally, perhaps linking off verse 12, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, see my affliction. That seems to be a linking thought. As he celebrates God's faithfulness to those who are afflicted, it now makes him mindful of his own affliction. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Again, David, I love this. David is not arguing just desserts. He's not arguing tit for tat. A cry for grace is a cry for something undeserved. That's what grace is. You cannot buy grace. You cannot obligate grace. It has to be freely given. And David doesn't say, I've done my devotions every day for the last year. Show up and help. I need grace. I need grace. David, and I think I gave this blank earlier. First David praises, then he remembers, and then he requests. And the first request out of his lips is, I need grace. See my affliction from those who hate me. 
O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. So much going on here, but we have to move quickly. Um, David's facing real life and death threats. Being at the gates of death is I am right on the edge of death. I'm, I'm this close. I'm at the very gates, and I don't want to enter in the gates of death. There's a different set of gates David wants to be at. Not the gates of death, but the gates of the daughter of Zion. But notice the argument. What reasons might you or I be tempted to give for why we want God to spare us? What, what, what reasons might we give? What reasons would we want to not die? There are things I want to get done. There are places I haven't seen. There, I want to see my children grow up. I want to... Those aren't necessarily bad things. What reason does David give? That I may recount all your praises... That's in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I may rejoice in your salvation. David's desire for life, point B, is that he might worship. David's desire for life is that he might worship. It's amazing. And it's convicting. I don't think that naturally is where my heart goes. Oh, Lord, protect me because I don't like suffering. Oh, Lord, protect me because I don't want to die. Oh, Lord, protect me because I want to see my kids grow Lord, protect me because I want to gather with other people and tell them what you've done and celebrate it and worship in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I I don't think our hearts start here. I'm, I'm guessing verse 14 is built upon everything that follows. If that seems unrealistic, well, that's neat. That's, that's a nice superlative. I think that's why verse 13 and 14 is not verse one and verse two. I think you can get your heart here if you start with a determination of praise and if you spend time dwelling on what God has done in the past and if you meditate on his throne and his protection and his care and if you gather with other people. I think then you could be in a place to say, I want to live so that I can worship God at church with my friends, with the Lord's people. I want to be delivered so I can tell other people what God has done for me. I'd be so excited to tell and recount all your praises to others. That's that's what this psalm gives us. Now, we'll pick up point six next week, but I just want to make uh, an observation, and I think that works well that David ends with this judgment motif. He picks up in, in chapter 10, but ultimately I want you to get that the, the problem of evil in this world, the problem of evil and injustice and oppression and social injustice and all of that is ultimately only reconciled by a belief in a coming judgment. That, that's where David, who's utterly confused here, he does not know why the Lord is delaying. He does not know why it looks as though the, the needy are being afflicted and forsaken. But ultimately, his confidence is that there will be a day. I mean, think about that. If there is no coming judgment, then Stalin won. He got away with it. He was blessed for all of his murder and wicked evil. Tyrant after tyrant wins if there is no coming justice. But if there is a coming justice, we can live in light of that hope. I'm just going to close, we'll close in our prayer, just by closing, reading the last five verses of Psalm 9. 
and see where David's desire goes. The Lord, the nations have sunk in the pit they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higion Shalah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. You see, that's forward looking. There's going to come a day. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Salah. Come, O Lord, we await. We await the coming day. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your word, how rich it is, how practical and realistic it is. And we just pray that we would follow this pattern, that we would take this instruction, that we would determine to praise you even when we are vexed and afraid and confused, that we would remember and speak of your salvation and your mighty deeds to ourselves and to others, that we would um, be driven to worship you um, in, among your people, and that we would take confidence in who you are and ultimately, in your coming judgment, you will make all things right. Every wrong will be settled. Help us live in that hope. And we look back um, most amazingly to your demonstration of love at the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.